on this episode of The James Quandall Show. His question was, when are you going to kick me out? You know, and I replied, I'm not. There are only two ways you're leaving. If you ask your caseworker to pull you out, or two, if your behaviors caused you to get removed, but I'm not kicking you out. When will you believe that? He said, only if I'm 18 and I'm still here. Kevin Grimes is an attorney with Thompson Burton in Nashville, Tennessee. He has practiced law for 35 years. For the last 29 years, he has specialized in direct selling law, as well as the practice areas frequently associated with them, including food, drug, cosmetic, and dietary supplement law, contracts, distributor compliance, and international expansion. On the personal side, Kevin has been involved in youth ministry for 23 years. He was a therapeutic foster parent from 2000 to 2013. During that time, he fostered 30 teenage boys and adopted two of them. In 2018, he adopted a 14-year-old from Bulgaria, and in 2020, he adopted another 14-year-old from Latvia. Since 2016, he has participated in orphan hosting programs that bring orphans from developing countries in the U.S. for four to five weeks over Christmas and four to eight weeks over the summer. He has hosted nine different orphans from Latvia over the last five years. Several times a year, he volunteers at Hogar Sima, a group home for abandoned children in Lima, Peru. Kevin does not believe that we are on this planet to suck air for six to nine decades and live a life that is primarily about maximizing our pleasure, comfort, and ease. Rather, he believes that we are here to make a difference in the economy of eternity and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. His passions are Jesus, youth ministry, orphan care, and making differences in the lives of children. I would like to hear more about what we were just talking about of why not? Why not uh, go to heaven sooner? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Um, You know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a lot of people, a lot of explorers were looking for the proverbial fountain of youth, you know, Uh, and I guess the assumption was if you drank from it, you could live forever. Well, uh, why would somebody want to do that uh, on, on this earth if they really understood what heaven was like? Um, and there's much that's great about this planet. That's for sure. There's much that's amazing and beautiful and breathtaking and thrilling and enjoyable. Um, but heaven is infinitely better. Yeah. I spent this morning looking at pictures of uh, your life that you shared with me of different trips like to, to Yellowstone and into Idaho and I think Latvia and all these other places. What Talk about some of the beauty of some of the places you've seen, the physical beauty of them. Sure. Um, well, I just, in, in March, I took uh, one of my sons and a couple friends to uh, Kruger National Park, South Africa for a week and Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe for a week. And, um, it, you know, and while both of these are spectacular, mind-blowing, world-class places, uh, you know, the, the primary purpose is not to go just to have our senses titillated, uh, but rather it's a great opportunity to, you know, take these kids out of their world, everything they're familiar with, you know, get them completely unplugged from everything. And it's an opportunity, you know, it's a 24-7 opportunity just to go, you know, deep with these kids and explore, you know, some of the huge truths of life, which is something that just normally does not happen, not not merely in a teenager's world, but in most adults' world, yeah. most adult worlds. 
And how do you imagine heaven to be better than these places? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the Apostle Paul talked about that when he said that, you know, no, you know, I has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive, you know, w- you know, what God has waiting for, you know, people who are going to get to heaven. And so he, you know, claimed to have gotten at least a vision of it. And he just said, look, it, it's, it's beyond. And, you know, something, you know, as, as a Christian, you know, that humility, you know, causes me to do is, you know, finite man cannot begin to come, cannot begin to comprehend an infinite God. And, the, you know, the same is, you know, equally true about, you know, we live in a very finite world right now, but that won't be our reality later. So I know it's, it's mind blowing and it's, you know, much of it is beyond my ability to comprehend, and, and I'm okay with that. And do you do you think that the beauty of the, of nature is a proof of God in some way? Do you feel God's presence when you're in nature? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. Um, in fact, you know, Romans chapter one talks about that. You know that um, you know all of creation is proof that there is a God so that all men are without excuse. Nobody's going to be able to stand before God and said, I had absolutely no idea that you existed. Uh, again, the, the, the evidence is omnipresent and it's overwhelming and it's compelling. Yeah. When I visit a friend's farm or I, or I'm just hiking and disconnected and my phone's left behind and mm-hmm. I'm just barefoot on the ground or I'm, or I'm picking blueberries off of a blueberry bush or even just like planting uh, crops or whatever, I can feel a closeness to God that I don't feel anywhere else. And I think for me, it's because I'm actually paying attention. I think he's always that close to me. Like he's as close to me right now in this little studio as he is there. Right. But there I'm actually paying attention and I don't have my phone. I don't have distractions. I don't have TV. I don't have uh, Zoom meetings. I don't have anything on my calendar, and I can actually pay attention. Yeah, we we, we call that the art of being fully present. And uh, you know, the, the problem is there's so much noise in our life. There's so many distractions. There's um, this cool uh, episode where in, in Exodus, where God, you know. T- comes to Moses and says, hey, I want you to come up to the top of the mountain to meet with me. I say, like, okay, that's that's a pretty big deal, you know, one-on-one, you know, uh, with with God. And and the way it's translated, of course, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the way it gets translated in English is, you know, and, and when you get here, stay here. But obviously, if Moses is at the top of the mountain, well, where is he? Well, at the top of the mountain, well, why does he know? Why does he need to be told to stay where he already is? Well, that's not actually the way it, the way it's written in Hebrew. The way what it says in Hebrew is when you get here, be here. And you know, God understands how we're hardwired. You know, and it's like I'm sure you've climbed many a mountain, as have I. And you know, when we get to the top of the mountain, what do we almost invariably start thinking about next? Well, how am I going to get down? You know, it's like, uh, what, you know, what route am I going to take? Uh, how, how am I going to do this? And, you know, rather than being fully present, you know, we're on. And, you know, and of course, you know, God knew what was going on with Moses. It's like he's got these problem children called the nation of Israel. They're, you know, somewhat rebellious. And it's like it would be very, very easy to think about, you know, 10,000 other things. But God says, look, you're going to come meet with me. Be fully present. And, you know, again, you know, you, you think about just 
going back to your point about the interruptions in our lives, you know, how often do you go to lunch or dinner with a friend? Why? Because you want to spend time with that person. And how often is your time interrupted by one of these electronic interrupters, um, disruptors, AKA a cell phone? Yeah, it's, it's extremely common. And I've had to create boundaries and rules. For example, right now, my phone's not even in this room. It's across the whole house because not that I would have any intention of checking it right now, but just it being right. in my mere presence, it becomes something I'm looking at and wondering if there's any messages or anything like that. So it's right. it's hard. I've had to create rules and regulations to guide my life to be able to write and to be able to podcast because otherwise I would just be focused on small value tasks all day because they're they're the ones that interrupt the day most of the time. Right. But how do you yeah. be present then? So I get, I feel like it's actually pretty easy to be present when you're on top of a mountain and there's no one there and you're by yourself and you're like, wow, this is really great. I just conquered this mountain. I can sit peacefully for a second and have a lunch and, and drink some water and rest and, and thank God. And, and then like you climb back down and you go into your car and you go back to normal life. How do you keep that presence with you throughout the week? Well, I, I think it's kind of a discipline. I analogize it somewhat to sleep when I was... You know, in my my twenties, um, I you know I was I was active duty army, and you know, I'd, I'd get to bed relatively early, knowing that I had to get up quite. Or I'd go to bed early because I had to get up really early. And uh, my mind, and and uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people do this. You know, you know, my mind would just be racing about, okay, what are all the things I need to do tomorrow? You know, in the office, at the house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I came to find out that that's actually a, a sleep disorder, and a lot of people have it. And um, so I, you know, did research on, you know, what I needed to do about that, and and you know, came across some great research that explained, you know, just in terms of mental discipline, how you stop yourself from doing that, you know, transition over, you know, kind of into to sleep mode. And so uh, at the risk of oversimplification, I would say, you know, getting good sleep, if you struggle with that mind racing kind of thing, when you go to bed is, is just almost exclusively a mental discipline. And I would say, you know, it's largely the same with being fully present. It's a choice that we make. Although it seems like today, most people in our culture are not willing to make that choice to shut things down for a while. So what is what did you learn about falling asleep and, and taming the monkey mind? What what disciplines worked? What I learned was just that, again, it's it's just really simple, is, is teaching yourself, stopping yourself from that. Uh, you know, the, the hamster wheel of mental gymnastics when you go to bed and, and, you know, telling yourself and correcting yourself. It's like, no, bed is for sleeping. It's bed is not for planning. Okay. Bed is not for stressing. Um, it is for sleeping and, and stop thinking about tomorrow or next week or next month. <clears throat> you do that during the waking hours. And every time you catch yourself, you stop. And for me, you know, like my idyllic environment is, um, you know, uh, on a mountain with a hammock strung between a couple trees with a, you know, babbling brook, you know, just making its beautiful lullaby or listening to the wind whistling through, you know, the tops of some pine trees or something like that. Um, so do you keep a notebook next to the bed? So if you if you do have a thought, you can get it down and then your brain stops worrying about it. Or, or do you have any tricks like that? I, I, I don't because a huge part of my day every day is writing. And so about the last thing I want to do in my off time is more writing. Yeah, that makes sense. I've found a trick for me 
one is making sure I don't have any caffeine past noon. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times I'd be laying awake in bed, tired physically, but mentally alert because I had too much caffeine that day. And once I realized it was the caffeine, I was able to start falling asleep. And then some days when I couldn't fall asleep and my brain was going crazy and it was because of caffeine, I realized I could just take a little L-theanine, which is in green tea, which is like my go-to drink, which I'm drinking right now. Uh-huh. And it would just shut it off. And then the, the the last trick that I've learned is just breathing and just focusing on breathing. And I do this breath. It's four counts in and then eight counts out r- slowly through my mouth. And after like two or three of those, I'm just out because I'm wired like that. I am always thinking about tomorrow and what I need to do. And I have all these great ideas while I'm laying there in bed and I don't want to write them down either because that would require having some kind of light and a pen and all of that. But so what, what are the benefits of being more present? What have you found of, as you've gotten better at being present, what, what physical or personal benefits have you seen? Um, well, I would say your, your relationships are a lot better. Um, but I would, I would also say it affects this thing that I call get itness. And, um, you know, having been in youth ministry for a very, very long time, one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, young people or actually people of any age is, do you get it when it comes to fill in the blank? You know, do you get it when it comes to life? Do you get it when it comes to the important subsets of life, like relationships, time, money, work, priorities, whatever. Um, and particularly in the first world, we're unbelievably smug about what, what we think about our level of get itness. And with a student, you know, we can, we can talk about school. It's like, okay, what, what math are you in this year? Well, I'm in algebra. It's like, well, do you get it when it comes to algebra? It's like, well, I got an 85, you know, in school, your get itness or your understanding, your comprehension, your grasp of the subject matter is measured on a frequent basis in the form of homework, tests, quizzes, papers, things like that. And, you know, that feedback then empowers a person to make some decisions. I was like, oh, I got an, you know, I got an 85 on my last algebra test. I need to work harder, you know. Or I for me, getting... I should be celebrating. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. 85, I would have been happy with a 61. I'm an overachiever. Woohoo. But, you know, so, but it is that feedback is very empowering about making future decisions. But, you know, in life, life doesn't give you grades. Now, it does give you feedback, albeit usually indirect, like, wow, how did I end up in jail? Or, um, you know, why is this relationship falling apart? And, um, yeah, again, you know, do I get it when it comes to, like I said, fill in the blank. And for, and I think, you know, males in particular struggle a little bit more with our perspectives about, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, I'm a guy. What do you mean? Do I get relationships? What do you mean? Do I get work? Uh, you know, of, of course I do. And, you know, the correct answer is not, not nearly well enough. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, practicing the art of fully, of being fully present, you know, kind of helps or can help when combined with some humility, um, you know, bring some clarity and focus to, to some of those issues. And then that, you know, from there, things get really, really interesting. So it helps with your, your self-awareness and your own personal giddedness. I like that word, by the way. That's pretty clever. Thank you. <laughs> I could see that being a kid go, oh, I really, that's really unique. I've never heard that anywhere else before, too. You'd be cultivating self-awareness by being more present, and then you can actually see how your relationships are, or you could see how you're spending your time, or you can see what priorities are on your calendar. And 
like what do you find is the result of that personally when you're when you're diagnosing those things well for me not being the supremely selfish self-centered self-serving american i'm very very blessed to have traveled to i think 53 countries thus far uh so i've still got a ways to go and i'm an american but i gotta tell you you know in in my opinion and this is opinion you know i think ours is the most most selfish self-centered self-absorbed narcissistic culture on the planet and that's a very very toxic situation but it's like you know the challenge for most people is when you've been raised in that when that's all you've ever known it it is normal but something that most people don't consider is just because something is normal doesn't mean that it's right or that it's good or that it's healthy you know a little bit of circumspection uh and you know that's that's one of the reasons that i like to take kids and adults uh, around the world is to, you know, allow them to experience some other cultures, some other ways of thinking, you know, maybe open up their mind uh, to some things that it wouldn't otherwise be open if they just stayed, you know, here in the United States. So I am, I, w- I am sheltered and in, in, in that way. If you were to take me and a couple of my friends on some trip to help open our eyes to the, the culture that we're living in and how it's not like that everywhere else. How would you design a trip like that to, to help open my eyes? Well, that, that'd be easy because I do that. I do that all the time. Uh, several years ago, I should I was involved with a um, local youth program um, that was about, um, you know, kind of prepping kids or equipping kids to be evangelists to speak against drug and alcohol abuse, uh, you know, with peers. And um, so I, I was speaking to a, a group of leaders, uh, you know, the kids, you know, teenage leaders, and I showed them this documentary called The Human Experience. And it's an absolutely incredible documentary, won awards from around the world. It was a brainchild of these two brothers. They grew up with a, an abusive, violent, alcoholic dad. <clears throat> they ended up in foster care as the documentary opens, they're 20 and 28 years old, respectively, living in a group home for young adults. And they said, you know, given our childhood, our, our worldview was that, you know, this, the world is a harsh, cruel, abusive, toxic place where the people who are supposed to love you actually hurt you. But we believe that there's great love and beauty and joy and all these wonderful things in the world. And so we want to get out there. We want to have these experiences. And so they, they, they were living in, in New York City at the time. And so their first experience was to live on the streets of New York as homeless people in the winter. And they have these amazing, extraordinary interviews with a lot of homeless people, as well as a lot of pundits from different disciplines. Their second experience was to go to Lima, Peru, where they hooked up with an American pediatrician, Dr. Tony Lazara, who decades ago, left it all here in the U.S. to go start a clinic to take care of the poorest of the poor in Peru. And then from there, they went to Ghana, Africa, where they split their time between a leper colony and uh, just talking with young people who are dying from AIDS. And the documentary doesn't ask this question, but it sets up the ability to ask this question. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is it possible that there are things that are more important, more noble, more transcendent than just sucking air for seven, eight, nine decades and living simply to maximize your pleasure, comfort, and ease. And the documentary just slam dunks the answer. So I actually, after we watched that, some of the boys approached me and said, we'd like to go down to Peru and work at that children's clinic. 
well, I was stunned because um, I would not expect something like that from an American teenage boy. And, and I always want to know a person's motivation. So I asked, well, why in the world would you want to do that? And I was expecting a very selfish answer, like, well, we just want to get out of the United States or we just want to go on a vacation. But the reply was, we, we, would, we just want to go help those children. <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. well, you know, I, I can support that. So I contacted uh, Dr. Tony and uh, this was in October, 2015 for uh, a spring break trip in March, 2016. And he said, we are completely booked. I mean, people literally volunteer from all over the world to, to come work at that children's clinic. And having been there, I, I understand why. So anyway, we ended up, instead of that, we, we ended up, um, just volunteering our time at Hogarth SEMA. It's a group home for abandoned children in Peru. One of the realities, one of the really sad realities of poverty in, in Latin America or South America and Central America uh, is that, um, you know, in Peru, starting about age five, adults start kicking their children out of their home. The average monthly income in Peru is $240 a month. So what that means is, you know, half the population is below that. So, you know, there's extreme poverty. And so there are literally, you know, in Lima, city of 8 million people, there are, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children who've been abandoned and they live on the streets. And so they come to places like Hogarcima. And so to answer your question, I would take you to a place like that and let you, you know, get to know these kids, experience these kids, live with these kids, eat with these kids you know, and, you know, see what their lives are like and, and just see how many incredible opportunities are out there to help them and, and children like them around the world. I'm definitely ignorant to that in the world. And that's why I'm, I'm so intrigued by your story, because you live here in the United States, but you understand what's going on in the rest of the world. I'm sure it's taken a lot of effort to get where you are now and understanding what, what, what did that look like? How did it start for you? Well, it started over 20 years ago with, uh, kids landing on my doorstep. I was, uh, I was teaching high school, Sunday school, and there was this one 15 year old boy, you know, just great kid, but on a, almost, and I, I knew things were difficult for him at home. I didn't know all the circumstances, but it, it sounded like a pretty stressful family situation. And about once a month, he'd make a comment like, oh, you know, wow, I, I wish I could come live with you. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the single life and everything's good. And yeah, I hope you can work things out at home. But, you know, after an entire year of this, finally, you know, he called me up one day and there was something very wrong in his voice about, you know, please, 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 you know, can I come stay with you? So talk with his parents and they're like, please, 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 could he come stay with you? And so he did. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, I've got a 15 year old, uh, 16 year old kid at, you know, in, in my home. And it's like, okay, well, I was thinking this would just be a long weekend kind of thing, but it morphed into, um, you know, quite a bit longer. Uh, eventually, eventually he did go home. But then after him, I, I had um, a friend who was a youth pastor in San Diego at the time, and he started bringing kids up uh, just, you know, to experience the West and mountains and national parks and stuff like that. But then they started landing on my doorstep. And I mean, some of these kids were from super rough background. One of them, um, his dad was a real member, a lifelong member of the Hells Angel, spent half his time in prison, the other half strung out on drugs. And so... Uh, and these kids, they get to know others. And so it's just like, 
one kid after another. So finally I decided, man, I, you know, I want to get licensed as a foster parent. I want to have that accountability and oversight, you know, so nobody thinks, you know, there's something weird going on. And so I got licensed as a therapeutic foster parent and guess what? That, that brought more kids. And so from uh, 2000 to 2013, uh, fostered 24 uh, children. Uh, even after I decided in 2013, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm done with fostering. Um, you know, they, they, they still kept coming um, because, uh, you know, being a foster parent is definitely challenging. Being a single foster parent is really tough, um, but it is what it is. You know, these, these, these kids need help, um, you know, and I mean, they're, they're all incredible. They're, they're all worthy uh, of the help. You know, they deserve a family. They deserve to be loved. They deserve to have a home. They deserve to have a future. There's so much there to talk about. One, you have been working in a career during that whole time also. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've for the last, um, gosh, 36 years, I've worked full time as a lawyer. And are you in the office that time? Or are you working from home? I mean, how are you managing having teenage boys in your house and also a, a demanding career like a lawyer. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a tough career in any situation. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. I mean, for, yeah, for all that period. Yeah. I was in an office. Now I work at home, which works great. Um, but yeah, but during that time with all the foster kids, yeah, I, I was working in an office um, and, you know, so they'd be in school Monday through Friday, you know, I'd be at the office. I'd make it a point not to work too late because you don't know, you know, in what condition your, your home will be. I, I mean, there are some crazy stories. Uh, for example, uh, in 2009, uh, a 12 year old was placed with me. And at that time I had, uh, adopted a boy who was a little bit older. He was 16 at the time. And this 12-year-old, one week after the 12-year-old arrived, he came at my 16-year-old son with the biggest butcher knife we had in the house. And the 18 months that followed were quite the adventure. He eventually ended up, the 12-year-old, the, the 18 months later, eventually, you know, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. Sometimes it takes me a little while to, you know, fully appreciate the gravity of certain circumstances. And so it, it took me that long to convince his caseworker that he really needed, you know, 24-7 residential care, which is ultimately what he got. And, and, and his issues were so substantial that, you know, children are normally in this facility. This was Oregon's highest level treatment facility. Children are normally there for one year. He was there for three. Wow. So that, that's, that's a monument to the breadth and the depth of his issues. But um, so, yeah, in, in any event, when you, when you have children who have some potentially significant issues, yeah, you, you don't want to be away for too long. I, I don't want to scare anyone listening away from potentially becoming a foster parent. So let's talk about... <laughs> we can talk about more of the um, some of those stories, but I really want to hear some of the positive things that are encouraging for people that are listening and maybe have considered this and haven't done it. Oh uh, yeah, and and the the great news is, the, I mean, the positive stories you know outnumber the the scary stories you know a hundred to one. I remember, gosh, two thousand three, two thousand four. I had um, two guys. They were they were they were older um, and. After they turned 18, because um, they were still with me, they weren't making good decisions. One got involved with alcohol. His life went downhill. The other one got involved with drugs. His life went, went downhill. 
they, they both blew out of my home at kind of the same time. Well, one enlisted in the Coast Guard. The other one went to an audio engineering school in New York. And so about a year later, I was taking my first trip to Africa with a bunch of kids. We had an overnight in New York. And so one of the, one of the boys who was with me was best friends with the guy who was at the audio engineering school in New York. And he said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we get together with him? And it's like, you know, I'm not really excited about that because he ended up stealing some things from my home. And so just, I wasn't super enthusiastic, but anyway, we did and spent our time together, got on the plane, went to Africa. So when I, when I came back, my cell phone was blown up with text messages, some of which were from this kid in New York. And he was just saying, you know, gosh, it was so great to see you and just really missed you. And it was all I could do to you know, keep from crying. I thought that's a really unusual message. So a month later, I had a business trip to New York and I contacted him. I said, hey, I'm getting in at midnight. I've got a 9 a.m. meeting. Do you want to go get some Chinese food at 2 a.m.? And he's like, yeah, that would be awesome. No great place in Manhattan where we do that. So we did. We got together. I pulled up that message. I said, what, what's up with this? And he said, well, you know, when I was living with you, um, I made a lot of poor choices. And I said, I, I really, really value my relationship with you. And do you remember how when I lived with you, we used to you know, butt heads on pretty much everything? And I said, yes, I have great clarity on that. And he said, you remember, you remember how I used to tell you you were an idiot and you didn't know what you were doing as a parent? I said, oh, yes, I remember that as if it was yesterday. And he said, well, I found out you were right about a lot of things. And I'm like, seriously? And he said, yeah, I said, it, and I, I said, well, it sure didn't seem like you were listening to anything I ever said. He said, yeah, I know. But I was, you know, every, every adult, my, my parents, my teachers, the people at my church, every single significant adult in my life gave up on me, but you were relentless. You were relentless to speak truth into my life and you were relentless to love me. And I just want to thank you for being relentless. And it's like, wow. Well, okay. And it's like, maybe, maybe I did do something right. Had my meeting, flew back home. Next day I had to turn around and fly to Florida for a conference where this other kid was stationed in the Coast Guard. So we got together for dinner. And, and he says, you know, I really regret a lot of the decisions I made when I was living with you. I made some really poor choices. I'm sorry about that. And he said, you, you, do you remember how we used to butt heads on so many things? And <laughs> to which I said, yes, I remember that very well. And he said, do you remember how I used to tell you you were stupid and you, did, you had no idea what you were doing and you're completely incompetent? I said, mm-hmm, yep, as if it was yesterday. And he said, well, I found out you were right about a lot of things. And, I'm, you know, again, no same thing. I'm like, way. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it sure didn't seem like you were listening. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I was. And he said, listen, I just want to thank you for being relentless. Exact word. And I said, stop right there. I said, have you been talking with Caleb, the, the, the first boy from New York? And he said, no, I've, I've not talked with him in three or four months. And I just thought, Wow. You know, because as a parent, you know, I, every parent second guesses himself or herself on a lot of the decisions they make. Did, did I handle this situation right? Did I say the right thing here? And it's awesome when you get some confirmation. I, I guess I handled that situation well. And the way that those two conversations mirrored each other to me was just some divine compens or your divine um, confirmations like, eh, maybe, maybe you handle this one correctly. So that, you know, that was a great experience. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but similarly, like my first official foster kid, he was placed with me when he was 15. His, so his social worker 
uh, when he when he contacted me, this 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 social worker was such a slick salesman that his opening line to me was, "Hey, I've got a 15 year old boy on my caseload or caseload that nobody in the state of Idaho will take." <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Wow!" So, so he's like, "I thought of you," and uh, so I'm like, "Yeah, sign me up." Yeah, I mean, he, he, he a lot of trauma in in his background, but we worked on it again, just being relentless and you know speaking truth and just loving on him and holding him accountable. In fact, he was on probation pretty much his entire time, so I got to know. Uh, I'm I'm not a litigator. I don't go to court. I've gone to court more time with my kids than you know in a few years than I have in 35 years of private practice and. Um, and in fact, less than a month before he turned 18, his probation officer and the judge and I, we, we got him committed to the Department of Juvenile Corrections because, I mean, he was absolutely heading to prison. Well, he went, spent 13 months there, the, probably the best experience of his life, totally turned his life around. He's 31 years old. He is a productive member of society. He's been gainfully employed for you know last eight years with the same company, super hard worker, passionate father of, you know, of a nine-year-old and five-year-old boys and just an awesome young man. Three years ago, I had the privilege to adopt a 14-year-old from Bulgaria, um, my son, Andrew, and uh, just the change that's uh, unfolded in him and, you know, his drive and his desire to make a difference in the world and help other people. It's just been uh, breathtaking. So why teenagers specifically? Because I've, I've always understood a lot of folks are looking more for younger kids to, to mm -hmm. foster. Why did you specifically choose teenagers? For the same reason that um, when I was applying for my foster, foster care license, you know, they, the social workers asked me, well, you know, what type of children are you thinking about fostering? And I said, well, I, I don't think I'm nearly bright enough to handle young children. They said, yes, we, we can certainly see that. And I said, I, I don't think it's appropriate for a single man to be fostering girls. And they said, absolutely. In fact, we, we can't place opposite genders with single parents. And so I said, I think the only kind of kids I could help would probably be teenage boys. And they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Because everybody will take little kids. Um, well, every, everybody who's willing to be a foster parent. And most people will foster girls, but nobody wants to have anything to do with, you know, with teenage boys. You know, part of it is after, you know, 30 plus teenage boys, I think I'm starting to become moderately competent at, at parenting them. You know, the other part of your question is you're absolutely right. When it comes to adoption, whether domestic or international, everybody wants babies. You know, everybody wants infants. A lot of people are happy to adopt toddlers. But the truth is that once a child, once an orphan hits age 10, I mean, worldwide, the percentage of older orphans, which is age 10 and older, drops to two to 4% because the vast majority of people just see them as having major baggage, major issues, and just, I, I don't want to deal with it. So is the foster care system, is the goal to eventually find homes for these kids to be adopted into or is the goal for them to in the case of teenage boys to become 
self-sufficient men and kind of in their own? What is the goal? It, it, it varies from child to child. It's a case by case situation. And it, you know, depends largely on the parents too. you know, whether the goal is reunification with their biological parents or whether it's not. And so, you know, the, the state typically makes that determination in a, in a reasonable amount of time. You know, sadly, obviously, you know, children come into foster care for very, very serious reasons. Uh, I don't know what percentage of children, you know, nationwide, I don't know what percentage of them are ultimately reunited with their biological parents and what percentage have, uh, you know, the, their parental rights terminated. Um, <clears throat> I just, I don't know, you know, maybe 50, 50, it may be 20, 25, 75. Um, I, I don't know, but obviously no child will be considered to be placed for adoption unless the biological parents' parental rights have first been terminated. Not all the children in foster care are available for adoption. There, there are many who are not. And I mean, it's, it's great if they're, you know, if their parents can be, you know, rehabilitated to work through and to remedy whatever their issues were that, you know, caused their children to be removed. I mean, obviously that's, that's the most desirable situation, but sadly, there are a lot of parents who are not willing to change, you know, some struggle uh, with, you know, very, very serious addiction issues, you know, others struggle, you know, with violence or incarceration or whatever else. Hey, sorry to interrupt the show, but I must share this recent listener review from On the Lake 3. Super positive vibe and encourages me to look for areas to improve and grow. I'll keep listening for sure. If this is your review, please send me an email at podcast at quandall.com and I'll send you a swag bag. These bags are fantastic. They're filled with my favorites, including Purity Coffee, Vitamin D3 from Thorn, Energy Bars from Keon, Lion's Mane Coffee from Four Sigmatic, Electrolytes from Protect and UCAN, and much, much more. You'll want to get your hands on one of these swag bags. How about you? Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. Now, back to the show. You mentioned you're getting pretty good at being able to foster these boys. So I'm curious what it is that you learned that has helped. I consider myself to be a, a pretty passionate student of parenthood. I mean, you know, to, to get my license, I had to take this this course that the state required. And I was, I was really, I was pretty cynical and not excited about, you know, good grief. You know, what does state government know about parenting? Well, the, the course was phenomenal. It was co-taught with social workers and actual foster parents. And it was, I don't remember how many months it lasted, but I was blown out of the water. And it's just like, man, every parent needs to take this class, you know, to take their game up, you know, when it, when it comes to parenthood. Um, but sadly, most parents are really non-students of parenthood, and that's unfortunate. And, you know, you see that in their relationships with their children, and you see that in, you know, how their, their children turn out. No, I'm just curious what parenting techniques you've learned. I mean, I would consider this in the trenches parenthood, right? Most, if you're a parent, maybe you have one kid, two kids, three kids. You've had yeah. almost 30 or more. Right. And right. so you have a lot of wisdom. Um, and especially with hard circumstances. And so yeah. I just am curious what else you've learned about parenthood. 
parenting a child who comes from a you know severe trauma background is very different than parenting a child who doesn't come from that background. And so part of it is, you know, understanding trauma, the impact of trauma and how, uh, you know, children heal from trauma. But yeah, I mean, a big part of my recipe, obviously, you know, the first part is love. I think it's first Peter three, eight that says, you know, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, when I first started out, I thought love could fix any problem. Well, I was wrong. And, um, you know, that was, that was very naive, but it still does take love to, you know, to, to be relentless, to not give up on these kids to, in fact, um, I remember the, the, the boy who ended up, uh, you know, being committed to the department of juvenile corrections one year after he was placed with me, he just, he and a couple of his friends just went out and had a day of debauchery that I call black Monday, which resulted in them being charged with four misdemeanors and two felonies. And when we sat down to talk about it, you know, I talked for about an hour, you know, he just sat there silently. And when I finished, I asked him, do you have any questions? And his question was, well, when are you going to kick me out? And, you know, and I replied, I'm not, Uh, as I told you, when you arrive, there are only two ways you're leaving. Number one, if you ask your caseworker to pull your, pull you out or two, if your behaviors caused you to get removed, you know, by the juvenile justice system, but I'm not kicking you out. When will you believe that? He said, only what if I'm 18 and I'm still here. You know, I mean, he, he almost made it. His behaviors did get him pulled out of about two weeks before he turned 18. Um, but when he finished at the Department of Juvenile Corrections, then I, even though he'd aged out of the foster care system, you know, then I, I let him come back and, you know, spend some time here too. Really? And so that must have convinced him then that you, uh, there was no doubt after that then for him, right? I think there's always doubt. I, th- I think there's always doubt for these guys. They're used to people bailing on them or being bailed on. For example, uh, my oldest son was in foster care from age three to age 15. So 12 years. During those 12 years, he was moved 24 times. Oh. My, my second oldest son came into care when he was nine and came out of care when he was 16, when he was placed with me. And during those seven years, he was moved 23 times. Wow. So one was moved twice a year and one was moved almost three times a year. That's unbelievable. It is. And, and, and that just adds to the trauma. That just adds to the loss. And it's, it's a major deficit with the foster care system here in the U.S. Now, I've also adopted two boys from Eastern Europe, and they don't do that in Eastern Europe. They have incredible stability, you know, there for the kids. And I mean, honestly, I think that helps the children tremendously, at least what I've found with you know, children and orphans from Eastern Europe is they got a lot fewer issues than orphans from the United States. So how does that work? If you can, you can foster kids from other countries too, then? No, you, you can't, you can't do that. Well, you, you can do something similar. And so, yeah, this was, I mean, another fantastic adventure that unfolded about five years ago. In 2015, I you know clicked on this YouTube video that the title, I think loosely was something like Adoption Saved My Life. So, okay, I'll, I'll buy, click. And it was the story of this boy from Russia, an orphan from Russia, who was hosted by a family here in the United States via this program, by an orphan hosting program. And I'm like, orphan hosting what in the world is that so i googled that and it brought up uh, 
you know, half a dozen organizations that do orphan hosting. It's like, well, again, well, what is it? So I you research a little bit more. And so basically these organizations bring children, bring orphans from developing countries, you know, Eastern Europe, Central South America, Philippines, you know, places in Asia. Uh, they bring them to the U.S., place them with families for four to five weeks over Christmas, uh, four to 10 weeks over the summer. The Official purposes are, number one, to give these children a break from an orphanage. Number two, let them experience a healthy, functional, loving family. And number three, help them with their English, which can you know, really open up doors in the developing world. But the unofficial, unspoken, overarching purpose is to try to help these children find families. Now, there's no obligation to adopt. In fact, you can't even discuss adoption with the children, but it's a phenomenal opportunity to meet them. They have to go back home. You can't keep them. Uh, that would be a serious international incident, but uh, they, they have to go back home. But it, And so I started hosting in 2016 and I hosted a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old boy from Latvia and they were incredible. And it was a phenomenal experience. It was just wonderful. The kids were just so awesome. And uh, so I decided, well, that, that was for the summer of 2016. So I'm like, well, I want to do this again for Christmas. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be an orphan and spend Christmas Day in some dark, dingy Eastern European orphanage, just huddled with other orphans? I'll tell you, if you want to be depressed, go celebrate a birthday at an orphanage. It's I've done it several times. And uh and it's a privilege to be there. And, and, you know, and, and I, and I give the orphanage workers maximum props. I mean, they're, they're doing the best they can to, you know, put out this great spread and, and you know, the kids don't know any different. They're going through the motions, but what's not there is a loving family celebrating the birth and the life of this child. But anyway, so I hosted again for Christmas, the same two boys. And then the 14 year old said, Hey, I've got a 15 year old half brother gosh, it'd be great if he could come too. I'm like, let's do it. So the three boys came over. So yeah, I just, I just kept doing it since that time. I've hosted a total of nine, ended up adopting one of them. Who's now my 15 year old son, uh, Brian. Uh, but, and, you know, some of the kids have aged out, you know, they're, you know, 20 and, you know, I still maintain relationship with them. They still come over and visit, you know, when they can you know, and, and you develop these potentially lifelong relationships, you know, and, and some of the kids aren't free for adoption, which is fine, but it's still an opportunity to develop a relationship so that you can, you know, speak into the life of that child and, you know, support that child, you know, emotionally or whatever ways. Cause it's like when they age out, I mean, they are completely on their own, but just, just like kids here, you know, and, and the statistics are really abysmal um, in Eastern Europe. 60% of all girls who age out of foster care will end up in prostitution. 70% of all the boys will end up in hardcore crime, homeless, or in prison. And before turning 20, 10 to 15% of these children will commit suicide. Those are the facts. And has this program helped with that at all, or is it too soon to tell? It, it absolutely has. Uh, one program, and I can't remember the name, one hosting program, over 80% of the children that get hosted with them get adopted, which is Whoa. just absolutely phenomenal. What was the one that you used? It's a phenomenal organization. It's called Host Children. And their their website is hostchildren.org. It's a smaller program, but they're just 
fantastic to work with. Uh, I've actually got to sh- gotten to chaperone the kids to and from Latvia. And if you want to have a blast, travel with a bunch of orphans. It's a hoot. It is so much fun. Why? What What happens? Well, I mean, they're, they're just, they're so delightful. I mean, these orphan hosting organizations are really careful about, you know, vetting the children. They have people on the ground there who, you know, meet with the orphanage directors who meet with the children. They interview them. They, they get to know them. You know, obviously, you know, there are children who have some pretty substantial issues and, and uh, you know, may not be the best candidates for hosting. So, you know, generally the, the, the kids who get selected for hosting are just, you know, awesome. Um, but they're not enough you know, and invariably they're not enough host families, you know, who, who come forward to host, but um, it's, I, and I've hosted as many as five at one time. And again, it was just a blast. You know, you just, you just want to keep them. They're, they're just so awesome. And it's really hard to let them go. And, and again, you know, adoption is not in the cards for all of them, but like, you know, I've, I've got two in Latvia who are 20 and, um, you know, the other thing, too, it's like and if you've never been around children who've never been parented, it's difficult to understand the breadth and the depth of their lack of understanding of the world and important things in the world and how to do life. Because, again, orphanages do not parent children. Orphanages support children to survive. OK, they feed them. They clothe them. They try to get them through school, but they don't parent them. They don't speak truth in their lives. They don't develop their character. They don't just, you know, really help them with their, you know, their futures, their plans, their goals, their dreams, you know, again, all the things that a parent would normally do. And so these kids launch into the real world and, you know, this real scary world. And they very quickly find out, wow, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I'm not equipped to do. How am I going to survive? Yeah, we've got the same problem here in the U.S. In fact, um, you know, what what Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's and the Dave Thomas Foundation are to uh, adoptees, the Casey Foundation, the Casey family, the founders of UPS are to children in foster care. And gosh, I don't know how many years ago, but a lot. They commissioned this massive study <clears throat> and produced this document called uh, entitled Aging Out a Time for Reform. And it just looked at all the, the statistics surrounding uh, American children who age out of the foster care system. And the statistics are pretty much equally, you know, equally abysmal you know, as they are in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, for example, within 18 months of aging out, you know, of turning 18, the percentage of females who are incarcerated is 27%. And the percentage of males who are incarcerated is 44%, almost half. Okay. Now nationwide, if half of our 18 and 19 year old young men were incarcerated, we would be screaming bloody murder as a, as a nation, as a society. But this is a shadow population that has no voice. How big is it? How, how many kids are in, the, in that system? It's estimated that, you know, between 25 and 30,000 children age out of foster care in the U.S. every year. Wow, so that's a lot of kids. Well, they're young adults, I guess. They're not kids. They're 18. Well, chronologically, they're adults, okay? But emotionally, socially, intellectually, they're definitely children, okay? And this is the thing. You look at one of them, you know, you see, wow, this big hulking 18-year-old kid, and you, and, and you think adult. But, it, but again, one of the almost... 
you know, invariable consequences of trauma is a myriad of developmental delays. For example, 12 year old knife wielder, uh, you know, chronologically, he was 12 intellectually, because I got him tested, neuropsychologically tested. Intellectually, he was around 18, but emotionally, socially, he was about five. So he was intellectually further along than his chronological age. Very. That's really interesting. Yeah. And have you noticed that as a trend with, with these boys at all? Not, not usually. He was very, very unusual. So what about curiosity in general? With I, I imagine from what you were saying, the kids from the hosting program were exceptionally curious about what they were seeing as they were traveling and spending time with you. Is that is that so? Yeah. Well, some of them, uh, you know, some of them have been hosted before. Some hadn't. For example, the first children I hosted, the nine-year-old and the 14-year-old, the nine-year-old had never been hosted, never been out of Latvia. The 14-year-old had been hosted, I think, eight times before. So he was pretty familiar with the U.S., spoke English incredibly well. But, um, you know, generally, and, and I kind of like to blow their minds. I'm, I'm fortunate that I live, you know, just 100 miles away from Yellowstone National Park and 90 miles from Grand Teton National Park and, you know, close to others like Glacier National Park or Arches Canyonlands. But um, I also have fun. I, you can't take the kids out of the United States, but Hawaii is part of the United States. So I love taking them there. And um, that just blows their mind. You know, they've all seen pictures of places like that, but to actually go there and to swim in the warm water, you know, they've got the Baltic Sea, which is freezing and, you know, not very clean. Uh, so, to, you know, to get to go to someplace like Hawaii, it's just like a dream come true. And then I love to make up these big photo books for them to, to take back, which is awesome because if from 19 or excuse me, from, from 2017, to last year, I made, I think about 13 or 14 trips to Latvia. So I was going a couple times a year, you know, like you, you, you walk in their rooms and there's absolutely nothing. I mean, there's like, you know, there are these two little beds, there's, you know, like a little dresser, there's, there's a closet and there's pretty much nothing in anything, but they would always have these photo books, you know, sitting prominently on their dresser or their little desk and just, you know, I mean, you, you're making lifetime memories. Yeah. And and then when they're 20 and they're aging out of their program there, they have these memories. They've seen different things than they've been exposed to potentially. My thought is, is that would that would give them more purpose of the love that's out there possibly for them. And you've talked a lot about love. How do you love these kids? Like what what does that look like? Is it is it as little as feeding them or like what does love look like? Well, first of all, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question because again, here's another area where we, uh, people in the first world, were so smug about what we think we know about love. And so, now here's where the you know, the lawyer in me comes out and you know, as as a lawyer, you know, we're, we're big on definitions. You know, we, we define all sorts of things in contracts and, and other documents and settlement documents. We use this love. I mean, you know, what percentage of the human existence is dedicated to pursuing and enjoying this thing called love? Well, answer a lot of it. And uh, so one of my favorite exercises is I like to ask people to give me a clear, concise and accurate definition of true love. There, there are, you know, countless counterfeit versions of love, but what is true love? Well, I'll tell you, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but probably 80% of the people I ask will say, well, it, it simply can't be defined. Um, and the minority will 
you know, will will attempt to hazard a guess. It's like, well, you know, it's just great affection, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings, you know, tra la 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 la. And my response is, well, if we don't have clarity on what, again, when I, when I say love, I, I mean true love, not one of the, you know, countless counterfeits. But if we don't have clarity on what it is, how do we, A, know whether we actually offer it to anyone? And B, how do we know whether we're actually receiving it? And so about that point in the conversation, people ask me, well, Kevin, how do you define love? And I say, well, for me, I define it as the relentless pursuit of and fierce commitment to the highest and absolute best interests of another person. That's my definition. So now that we know your definition of love, how has that shown up over the years with these boys? I mean, I see one is is that with that young boy that you didn't give up on. You you said, hey, the only way you're going to leave this place is if you ask to leave or if you're removed. I'm never going to have you leave. That, to me, is a, is a sacrificial love of any kind there. Another example would be adopting them. It's very costly to do that. I don't mean economically. I'm not talking about money at all. It's very costly in terms of yourself, laying down your life for the, for the life of, of another. I understand why most people aren't willing to do that. Unfortunately, their true reasons for not being willing to do that generally are tied to selfishness. And that's very unfortunate. You know, people will say, it's like, oh, wow, it's so amazing and exceptional what you do, Kevin. And my response is, it shouldn't be. This should be normal. It really should be. There should be nothing exceptional about fostering, adopting, you know, hosting. It should be the norm. How do we get it there? People's hearts have to change. You know, I, I sent you the video by Eric Ludy called Depraved Indifference. Yeah, and I will, I'll link to that video um, in the show notes for this episode. And I'm going to put those over at quandall.com slash grimes. And that's quandall.com slash grimes, G-R-I-M-E-S. And everything we talk about, I'll link to hostchildren.org. I'll find that study that uh, the aging out, a time for reform. I'll put that YouTube video that you sent me in there and anything else that we talk about, anything else you, you think we should add there for folks too. But so, so seeing that video changing hearts, it starts with like me, right? Me as a person, how would you suggest someone gets a taste of it? Is hosting a good place to start? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, uh, and hopefully, you know, I mean, somebody's heart will be you know broken or changed. I, I love the movie Schindler's List. I mean, you know, there's a lot that's gruesome about it. But at the end of the day, the story of Oscar Schindler is the story of a man whose heart was completely transformed from that of the normal, typical, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic person to somebody who actually risked his life to save the lives of over a thousand people. So it's, it's this amazing story of transformation. You know, so I, you know, I mentioned Dr. Tony Lazar of, of that, that children's Via La Paz children's clinic down in Lima, you know, same thing. He went uh, on a medical mission trip to India and he was just destroyed by the, you know, unbelievable poverty. He saw, you know, children living under and it, it changed his heart, which changed the, the trajectory of his life. But so many people aren't willing to do that. I remember years ago, <clears throat> I was in Texas in November, which apparently is National Adoption Month. I was listening to this talk show radio and they had the executive director of uh, an, a Christian adoption agency uh, and they were talking with her and she was running through some numbers that I thought I'm kind of a numbers guy. And it's like, this is, this is very telling. She said, here in the state of Texas, 
the number of children who are in foster care who are available for adoption. Again, not all children are available for adoption in foster care. But here in the state of Texas at this time, we have 2,500 children available for adoption. I mean, legally, they're orphans. Their biological parents' parental rights have been terminated. Also here in the state of Texas, we have 25,000 Christian churches. So that means if simply, if merely one family and one out of 10 churches would come forward to adopt, we would eliminate orphans in the state of Texas. Well, then good. It was done immediately after that program aired, right? It it wasn't. That's the thing. You know, there are still thousands of orphans in the state of Texas. And it's like, you can't tell me that, you know, that God has not called at least one family and one out of 10 churches <clears throat> to come forward to adopt. I mean, you know, we, we know what he says about orphans and, you know, he loves orphans. They are the special of the special. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the fact of the matter is most Christians have a depraved indifference with respect to orphans. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to take ownership, but you can't argue with the numbers. Yeah. So I'm thinking very tactical steps for, for myself and other folks to take. One is ho- uh, uh, watching that that video would be a, a start, but then maybe looking at a hosting program. Or you mentioned visiting an orphanage. Is that a good option too in the U.S.? Well, <laughs> it it can be. Well, or doing things like they, you know, I mean, you know, you can contact your local Department of Health and Welfare and just do kind of like a big brother, big sister type program. I remember years ago I was in Los Angeles and I'm heading to LAX Airport, and there's this huge billboard that was put up by the LA County uh, Department of Health and Welfare. And they were looking for families just to open their home one weekend a month to a foster child in LA County. Do you know how many children in foster care in LA County? This was probably 15, 20 years ago. You know how many foster kids they had or kids they had in foster care in LA County at that time? Probably what, 10,000? About 13,000. <laughs> yeah. So, but how many families, you know, how many families are there? in, uh, you know, in a couple, in LA. few million. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the same thing. I mean, according to the last census, we've got 329 million people in the United States that represents 109 million households. Do you know how many American families opened up their homes to the adoption of a child internationally last year? Mm. 4,056. Oh, wow. Wow. That's not even a statistic, really. I mean, that you wouldn't count that out of the percentage. It would just be a rounding error. Right. Yeah. Wow. That is surprising. I'm speechless at that. Well, it, it, it says a lot about where our hearts are. It says a lot about how well we love. I walk around my neighborhood, and it's mostly retired folks, and they're yeah. um, three or 4,000 square foot homes with two people yeah. living in them and their four bedrooms and, yeah. um, and they have disposable income. They have time. They're at home They're I, I, I converse with a lot of my neighbors and they're looking for, they, they don't directly say this, but they're lacking things to do or purpose sometimes. Purpose it seems direction. Like. You know, their kids are grown up and doing their own things now, or they never had kids. And we have the space, we have the money, we have the time. What we don't have is, the heart or eyes we're we're not we're not looking we're not our eyes are closed they're scaled over all all of the above 
let me let me give you a couple encouraging stories. So Saturday night, I was uh, down in Utah, took some of the boys down to a little amusement park down there, and we had dinner. And afterwards, um, we were at this little shopping mall. There's this little kiosk. And the, the boys start talking with these two ladies. It was a, a, a mom and, and her adult daughter. Well, the, mo- the mom was 72. And I started talking with her, found out that and she's a widower uh, at age 72, just six months before she became a foster parent. I was blown out of the water that this 72 year old woman would be willing to do that. I mean, to me, she's a superhero. You know, she's just an absolute superhero. So she's, she's, you know, just grilling me with questions, which was wonderful. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I was stunned and I have so much admiration for her that she, you know, I, I want to say at her age, but it's like, why not? You know? I yeah, mean, she has the wisdom. She's lived a, a life. And as a, a member of that generation, she's been through many, many ups and downs that some of the younger folks like myself in this country really haven't had to go through. But she, but she also, a person like that takes away other people's excuses. Oh, I'm too old. Well, you're younger than 72. Well, um, you know, my wife and I are so busy. It's like, well, she's doing this as a single. What's your excuse? Well, look, and look at you doing this. Absolutely. You know, people ask, well, why in the world? You know, are you adopting kids, single guy? Answer, well, part of it, you know, and I'm not really true, but it's like, well, because the married people aren't stepping up. Why are they not stepping up? Because they're selfish. I welcome anybody to disagree with me, but I I contend after visiting 53 countries and a lot of which are in the third world, that this is, I mean, European culture's up there too, and, and first world Asian culture's up there too, but I don't think any other culture is as selfish, self-centered, narcissistic, self-absorbed as we are. There's a phenomenal documentary called Living on One Dollar. I saw that. Yeah, that was that was great. Well, I, I love to show that to people because at the end I'll ask, it's like, okay, based on what you've seen, who would you say is happier, the typical Guatemalan or the typical American? Nobody ever says Americans. It's like Guatemalans, even though these are some of the poorest people on the planet, they laugh and smile more in a day than most Americans do in a month. And so then, you know, I'll start asking the diagnostic questions like, well, so what would you, you're an American. Okay. What would you say is at the core, the absolute center of the American concept of happiness? Even teenagers are dialed into this and you know, the most typical answer is money. And I'll say, well, money for what end? Well, money to buy stuff. Well, for whom? Well, for yourself and your family. And I'll say, well, would it be fair, not trying to put words in anybody's mouth, but would it be fair to say that the American concept of happiness is a very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed happiness? They're like, yeah, absolutely. It's all about me. Uh, and said, well, now, uh, now you're not a Guatemalan, but based upon what you've seen, what would you say is at the core of the Guatemalan concept of happiness? And they say, well, others, serving others, helping others, blessing others, loving others, benefiting others. Absolutely. It's like, well, one of these dogs don't hunt. Okay. Now there's certain attributes. There, there's certain things in the world that can't be combined. For example, you know, everybody over the age of 10 knows that oil and water don't mix. Okay. Everybody knows that. Most people don't know why, okay, but there is a valid chemical reason why. It's because the polarity of the oil and water molecules are, you know, are different and therefore they repel each other. 
but um, there similarly there are certain human there are certain character attributes that are mutually inconsistent and, and destructive to a desired result. For example, if I was married and I say, I want the most thermonuclear scorched earth ever growing. I want the most intimate, passionate love affair with my wife that's humanly possible, but I have the character attribute of infidelity. Everybody would say that character attribute will absolutely kill and destroy what you claim to be after. Totally incompatible, won't work, not possible, no way. Nobody would disagree with that. But just as much as infidelity is incompatible, completely incompatible and destructive to a lifelong love affair, so is selfishness and self-absorption incompatible with and ultimately destructive with true joy and lasting happiness. This the first world does not understand. And have you been to a country? Have you been? I'm, I just remember seeing this and read a book about it, about Denmark. It mm-hmm. seems to score high on happiness ratings. But from my understanding, they are a first world country. Have you been there or know anything about that? I, I have been to Denmark several times. I haven't spent a lot of time there. I've, I, you know, The time that I've been in Denmark was just as a tourist. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful country. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the people are awesome, you know, what I've experienced. But yeah, it's very much unquestionably uh, a first world country. And I'm curious what they're doing differently than what we are. If they are, I'd be curious to know about their um, their number of children seeking adoption and, and their, 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 their th- that type of data for them. Well, Euro- Europeans by and large don't adopt ever. It, it just, and, you know, and, and while, you know, there are a lot of cultures, you know, across Europe from Western to Eastern Europe, you know, Southern to Northern Europe, a lot of different cultures, they don't adopt. And I remember uh, I was talking a couple of years ago with one of the senior staffers at this orphanage in Latvia, and she had she'd been working there at the time eight years. And she said, during my eight years here, uh, we've had uh, 16 children adopted. Uh, one was adopted by an Italian family. 15 were adopted by Americans. None have been adopted by Latvians or any other Europeans. Why is why is that? It's a cultural thing. I mean, I've, I've talked with my friends in Germany and Spain and Italy and elsewhere. Well, not so much Italy, but in, in really the majority of the European countries, it's just like, no, it's, it's just not done. Our culture here isn't against the idea of adoption. We just aren't doing it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a lot more open to it than probably any other first world country, but we, we still don't do much of it. That's for sure. So if you aren't, uh, open to the idea of, of doing hosting or fostering or adopting. Is there another way you can help? Sure. Like I said, kind of the big brothers, big sister uh, type program. Having some connection with a family, even if it's once a month, is better than no connection. Yeah. Because like I said, the statistics for these kids when they age out are really abysmal. And if if they can develop a relationship with some, you know, loving, healthy, functional, caring adults, it can make absolutely life-changing differences. But let me tell you another really sweet hosting story. So um, Christmas 2019, uh, I was um, planning to host two boys from Latvia, and I got um, I got contacted by host children, and they said, hey, we have just got an exceptional 15-year-old boy from Ukraine. And this really has 
is his very last shot to try to find a family. Because unfortunately, for reasons I don't understand, U.S. to, to adopt internationally, you have to get the approval of um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And they don't approve adoptions for children who are 16 and older. Why they cut off at 16, I don't know. But that's where it is. So, you know, kids 15, he, you know, that that's really his last shot. And, they, and, you know, because I've worked with these guys and, and I know I can trust them. When they say a kid is exceptional, they're telling the truth. And so they said, could you see if you can reach out, you know, to your sphere of influence and just see if anybody might be willing to host this boy? And so I did. And, and a young couple here, you know, with two biological children, two younger biological children said, well, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd be happy to host him again, you know, but that was it just, just to host him. Well, sure enough, he was just as exceptional as they said, everybody in the family just fell in love with this kid. He fell in love with them. Uh, again, this was December, G December, 2019, January, 2020, you know, before he left, they asked, would you be interested in, in joining our family? You know, he's like, yes, they jumped all over it. They brought him home in April of this year. And do you think that that's the way it's going to be done? Is it's going to be a person like you that encourages another person to, to, to try it because it's these positive stories that I think are exciting and make it less intimidating because I just feel like what before we talked the first time the stories that I had heard were a lot of negative stories of, of yeah. things for whatever reason I mean I think I know the reason that's what we like to spread and talk about and 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 pay attention to and that's what we remember but um, these positive stories are eye-opening. Yeah, they, they really are, and, and and people do need to hear about them. And there are some, there there are some great ones out there. Like I said, that you know that video back in 2015. You know, and like I said, I I know I'm not getting the title right, but like I said, you know, adoption saved my life. Uh, what a great story! Because the the family that adopted this boy from Russia, I you know, adopted also a second boy. I I think he was also from Russia as well, but I'm not sure. Um, so, and yeah, it's, it's been so cool. And obviously, you know, and there, there's some great, you know, groups on Facebook, you know, various adoption groups and hosting groups and things like that. And I've gotten to meet, you know, so many families around the, the U S, uh, you know, who've gone down the same road, you know, they've adopted older kids, uh, and just been some really, really sweet stories. So I do want to change gears and ask you a couple questions uh, unrelated to that before we wrap up. But is there anything else you think that we should talk about as regarding the, the process of adoption or hosting or uh, fostering? Yeah, well, don't don't let fear rule in your life. You know, for example, another thing I hear a lot of times with respect to international adoptions is like, it's so expensive. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, I understand that. But, you know, here's the thing it's like um you know if if it's god's will for this child to be adopted he, he's going to make it happen and uh you know the, that was certainly my experience you know the money just really started flying in it was in fact it was stunning. i mean I, I did crowdfunding uh for my first international adoption what site did you use Let's see. I started off with GoFundMe. That was an absolute train wreck. I would never recommend GoFundMe. And um, I can't remember the one I ultimately, I've, I've got a phenomenal memory, but it's really short. Um, so I don't remember which one I ultimately used. But here's the thing that was so crazy is what I found is there are so many people who want to be involved in, you know, helping an orphan find a family. And they want to contribute. They, they, they want to help out. And the, but the most amazing thing was that 
some of the biggest contributors were 20 somethings. Hmm. I mean, I was blown away. I'm seeing $500, $500, $500. You know, I'm thinking, you know, Hey, 20 bucks from a 20 something. That, that would be great. You know, 50 bucks. Wow. hundred bucks. Whoa. But I mean, seriously, like $500 was the most common thing. I was just blown out of the water yeah. at how yeah. kind so many people are. And uh, so I, I, I took that fundraising experience. And when two of the boys uh, were getting ready to age out, like, so, you know, Latvia treats their orphans a lot better than some of the other European countries. Like some of them, like Romania, you know, orphanage director comes to a kid when he's 16. Here's a bus ticket to the other side of town. Have a great life. That's it. Um, Latvia at least keeps them till they're 18. Uh, they will provide them with an apartment. Uh, just the four bare walls and, and nothing else, you know, no, no bed, no towels, no nothing. So I did a, a, a crowdfunding thing for that. Uh, we raised about 3000 bucks per kid. Then I went over there and, and, you know, that's an intimidating thing too, you know, just trying to, you know, get the stuff you need. Um, again, they, you know, they're, they're given an apartment, I think through age 21, but uh, you know, just the process of buying a refrigerator or a bed or you know pots and pans is just completely intimidating. Yeah, that's something that we're you know I take for advantage that I knew what I needed to buy and that my when I first moved out my parents gave me some of that and told me what mm-hmm. I needed that I didn't get and I think there was a housewarming party and I got a lot of the small little things that I needed right and. Right. Um, if you don't have that sys support system, what do you do? You have a, a room, but what do you put in it? And, and, and so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and the, and the bottom line, you know, you know there's like, there, there's much that's good and noble about the American dream, uh, you know, freedom, uh, opportunity, uh, you know, the billions of people around the world who want to experience the American dream. But there's all, there also there, there's some things that are askew. I mean, you know, when you really start drilling down, it's like, okay, well, what are these? Why does why does you know everybody want to experience the American dream? Well, you know, what is it? It's like, well, come here, work hard. Nothing wrong with hard work. That's a good thing. Make a lot of money so that again, you know, you can just maximize your pleasure, comfort, and ease. And uh, you know, you you know, you were talking about all these people, you know, older people in your neighborhood who have these large homes. They got lots of time. They're retired. They've got you know, a lot of disposable income. And it's like, so do you think we're given that primarily just to lavish on ourselves or is it possible? Again, there's something more important, something more noble, something more transcendent uh, that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And just living to maximize our pleasure companies. There's a phenomenal book written by a guy named David Platt called Radical. And, you know, he's, he's a pastor. It's, it's a book that's you know written for Christians. And, and then the subtitle is, taking your faith back from the American dream. Uh, and, and it's like, yeah. So to the extent that we have been blessed with excess and pretty almost every American has been blessed with excess, what are we supposed to do? Well, what our culture says is you spend it on you, get yourself a nicer car, get yourself a bigger home, go on more vacations, get, get some nicer furniture, clothes. It's like, well, but that's not what God says. Yeah. And so I am curious about your own spiritual disciplines because I'm impressed with your um, 
your the, the amount of verses that you've memorized and can quote what what is like your um your spiritual disciplines look like as far as memorization and reading the bible and and that sort of stuff yeah it's it's good to read it so let me uh, let me let me give you two uh comparison points so several years ago i was at um uh, the largest christian music festival on the west coast is called creation festival in uh, washington state and uh, one of the speakers was speaking at a small fringe stage with about 3000 people in the audience and 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 creation festival is geared largely toward high school and college students and he said okay he said hey i'd just like to ask everybody to stand up so all 3000 people stand up he said now look you know even those christian music festival I, I know everybody here who's not is not christian and that's cool you know you're you're welcome you know but if you're if you're not a christian i'd just like to ask you to sit down i'd say maybe you know, hundred people sat down. So almost 3000 people are still standing. He said, now, okay. So everybody who's standing is, you know, calls themselves a Christian. Um, now, now, you know, some, some of you, you know, just to become Christians very recently. So if you've been a Christian for less than five years, I'd just like to ask you to sit down. And so I'd say about another, you know, 300 people, three or 400 people sat down. So we still got about 2,526 people standing up and says, okay, now what I want to do is, so everybody who's standing has been a Christian for five years or longer. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to randomly go around uh, and I'm going to call on people. I'm going to ask you to give me one verse, including book and chapter from memory for every year being a Christian. So you've been a Christian for 11 years, get ready to give me 11 verses, you know, from memory. I bet uh, they sat down quick after that. Yeah. He said, if you don't feel that you can do that, go ahead and sit down. And I would say probably 98% of the crowd sat down. Now, let me compare and contrast that with how it was 2,000 years ago in Israel. Okay, 2,000 years ago, uh, only boys went to school. They went, they went to synagogue school from, and it was mandatory from age five to age 10. And during those five years of you know, synagogue school, the boy, by the, by the time they finished, they had memorized the Torah the first five books of the old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized by 10 year old boys. Now the vast majority of these kids would, you know, then, you know, continue their education by learning the family business or a trade or something like that. But the, the brightest of the bright would go into phase two of school, which went from about age 10 to age 15. By the time these kids finished school at age 15, they had memorized the entire old Testament. Wow. Now that was the, the passion that they had for the word of God. You know, question whose passion is probably better, you know, there that, you know, Israelites of 2000 years ago or 21st century Americans. I love the same speaker who did that with the audience <clears throat> talked about this, this uh, one time where his wife went on a, a mission, a 30 day mission trip to Siberia and, and she was going to be in a super remote place. And the mission organization told her, you guys will be completely unable to communicate with each other. There's no Wi-Fi, no cell phone coverage, no, no nothing. So 30 days of incommunicado. So as he's driving her to the airport on her day of departure, she presents him with this box of 30 letters. <clears throat> she says, I've, I've written you a letter for each day. They're numbered one to 30. And so tomorrow you can open up letter number one, the next day, letter number two. You got to promise me not to open up you know, early. So he's like, okay, I promise. So next day he opens up letter number one. And he said, wow, it's just, it's just this beautiful love letter of how much she loves me, why she loves me, why she thinks I'm a great husband. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's really nice. So it's kind of excited to read letter number two. And I did and opened it up the next day. And 
it was even better letter number one. And he's like, you know, he's like, man, these letters were just extraordinary. And he said, you know, 20 days into this, I've, I've reread, you know, one through 15 so many times. I've started to memorize portions of, of the letters. But he said, can you imagine, you know, my wife returns, I go to the airport to pick her up. And, you know, we're driving home and she asks, you know, hey, honey, what, what did you think of the letters that I wrote you? And I'm like, well, sweetheart, I have been so busy. I, I, I put them in the back of the, the trunk. They're, they're still there right now. I am planning to read them as soon as I get some time. But I, I, I just have not had the time to read those letters. You know, he's like, is she going to love me any less? No. But, you know, can you imagine, you know, how that would impact her heart? And, she, you know, he said, I love the letters because I'm in love with the author of the letters. How about us? How much are we in love with the author of God's love letter to us? Yeah. I don't think there's a a better place for us to end than on that note. I think that uh, that's a great closing word. And I would love for you to share for anyone listening to this, where we can learn more about you or find out more about what you're doing or, uh, support you and what you're doing in some way. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know that there's there are answers to any of those questions. It's not like I've got a website, you know, kevingrimes.com. I don't. I know there's one out there, but it's not me. You know, I guess if people have questions, they're certainly welcome to email me if they've got questions about adoption or foster care or orphan hosting or you know anything we've talked about. They're certainly welcome to email me. My my personal email is k. D, D as in David, Grimes, 100 at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, gosh, if there's anything I can do to, you know, help a family love on an orphan or, you know, make a difference in a kid's life, you know, if they've got questions or <laughs> they've got fears or trepidations or doubts or whatever, you know, I'm certainly happy to, to speak to that if I can. Thank you very much. I will put that in. I will. I, maybe I won't put that in the show notes. Um, we don't want you to get any spam, but uh, for sure, the folks that are listening can email me, and I can I can share the email where they can rewind and and write that down and send you a note. That's very generous of you, and um, I'm just so grateful to have this conversation with you. And I learned a lot, and I'm going to look into some of these options myself. I think that um, there's there's definitely I have a a long list of excuses of not knowing more and be and being more involved and a short list of uh, valid ones, I would say. <laughs> so, well, I, I appreciate that. Well, let me, let me leave you with one thing and, and, and any listeners with the encouragement to watch the most phenomenal film I've ever seen in my life. It's a documentary. It's called Mully, M-U-L-L-Y. It's the documentary about Charles Mully, a man from Kenya who was abandoned at age six by his family in the bush uh, survived at age 16, came to Nairobi, became a multi, multi-millionaire. I mean, totally uneducated, multi-millionaire, you know, married. I think he's got eight or nine children living in a mansion, ends up wandering the streets of Nairobi at night, finding all these abandoned children, starts picking them up, bringing them home. Anyway, uh, that led to him starting an orphanage. Uh, they've been Mully children or Mully children's family, home has rescued over in 30 years, they've rescued over 12,000 children. Uh, and, uh, out of over 900 schools in Kenya, theirs is the number one school in the nation. Uh, their kids are going on to become 
doctors, lawyers, accountants, scientists, you know, whatever. But the point is, you know, here's this guy, married, big family, uber successful entrepreneur, and he left it all. And he has changed the trajectories of over 12,000 children over the last 30 years. And again, it's like, I love his story because he takes away all the excuses. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on the show and for sharing your story. And I'm so grateful for you and, and people like you out there helping helping children. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to, you know, what a pretty boring story, I think. Nevertheless, sure appreciate your time.